0: Thank you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. Reformed churches are sometimes accused of being rather stoic in their worship. Some might accuse a Reformed church as being one that quenches the Holy Spirit. Is this claim really fair? Do Reformed people really desire to quench the Holy Spirit? Why do Reformed people have such a high view of the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments? Does the Lord really work through such means? please join us and be edified as we consider the Lord building His church through the means of grace. In our series titled, Why Such Means? Well, we mentioned last time that it's always tempting, the thing of the Lord's Supper as just a continuation of the Passover, the redoing of the Passover, just to reduce it down to uh, being a, a sacrifice. But we said there's a lot more to it, and we talked about how it's more than The Passover, we talked about how it's more than just a sacrifice. And this week, I I wanted to go through and show how this is a a communion meal. Uh, Getting at next week uh, when we basically talk about why we call this the Lord's Supper versus a Eucharist. Again, it's not necessarily a, a terrible thing to refer to as a Eucharist, it just means basically a Thanksgiving meal. But why Scripture and why we as Reformed people refer to this as the Lord's Supper. But this week, as we look at the nature of banquets and and banquet scenes, and uh, Luke's Gospel does a really good job of basically doing a movement of Christ. As he turns his face to Jerusalem, there's a continual movement over to Jerusalem. And you see how feasting in the context of Luke's Gospel plays a very important role. So we're going to try and... Get a sample of that as we look at Luke 14, which is sort of the climatic feast chapter, if you will, as you have the parable of the feast and Christ at the feast. We're basically going to look at this and, and ask you know, how can we really talk about the Lord's Supper being significant in, in terms of a feast communicating Christ, communicating fellowship with Christ, and having this life in Him? So, as we look at this, we'll see the bigger picture. We'll see, secondly, tragic excuses, and last, our glorious entrance. So let's begin with the bigger picture. Uh, Basically, as we look at Luke 14, verses 12 through 14, we consider the nature of the Lord's Supper and arguing that the Lord's Supper is a feast table, it's a banquet. Now again, I know as we have the bread and the wine, we can think back in Dutch, far back in terms of history, uh, where you, you do hear of certain Dutch churches setting out tables and actually being served at those tables. It does take a lot more time to do the Lord's Supper that way. But it, the argument that, that people would appeal to, and this wasn't even when the CRC was going progressive. I mean, this is uh, really when the CRC, I'd say, was probably in its, its better days and its better history, if, if you will, to put it graciously. And so it's, it's appealing to this concept that we have in Luke 14. And we find this in our history, and it's why I want to keep referring back to this Belgic Confession article. Because notice what the Belgic Confession says. This banquet, so notice that, that the Belgic Confession, in the context of the Lord's Supper, refers to the Lord's Supper as a banquet meal. And so it says this banquet is a spiritual table, and which Christ communicates himself to us with all his benefits. At the table, he makes us enjoy himself as much as the merits of his suffering and death. And so this is this has a, a lot of theology communicated in very simple language. It's, it's incredible what's all here. But simply stated, what, what it means is that as we come together to the meal. We certainly have sort of a Passover sort of thing going on, right? Where we think about the history of being redeemed in Christ and having that life in our Savior. So we we think about that movement from slavery. We think about sitting around at the Lord's table and actually having fellowship with our God and, and, being, and communing with our Lord. We're in the presence of God. We think about Christ actually setting the table uh, in the context of us as being redeemed people. And so... When, when people say that, that the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper is just a memorial, or it's just this, or it's just that, I mean, I, I want you to be familiar with what our confession teaches. I, I want you to see the, the richness of what's in this article. Yes, these are old documents, uh, but just because they're old doesn't mean that they're irrelevant or insignificant. I, I think so often, unfortunately, in our culture today, uh, we, we have it reversed. We, we think newer is better, And we think older is is for the the unwise and the unlearned. And and by and large, you find it's quite the opposite, don't we? In fact, Scripture communicates it's quite the opposite. So when when we look at this, we want to really understand the significance of coming into the presence of God, sitting at his table, communing with our Lord and Savior. And this is what Christ is getting at when he talks about this banquet. And so the context here is where Christ, who is coming to secure, he's turned his face to Jerusalem at this point in Luke's gospel. He's going to the cross. He's going to die. Then now as he's invited to this house of the Pharisee, uh, he's noting how people interact. And so we've already talked about how people try to sit at the high end of the table. We see even, even the disciples when Christ... Uh, institutes the Lord's Supper, they argue about a place of significance. Here we, we have that picture of people sort of putting themselves in a position of honor versus waiting for the host uh, to seat them properly. When Christ is saying, you know, don't, don't try and get into this game of one-upmanship. It can actually lead uh, to a rather humbling and embarrassing situation when the host tells you you don't belong at the head of the table, but maybe more at the foot of the table is what Christ is saying. And he goes on to talk about the ethics of of banquets. And so the the ethics of what's going on with with a banquet, and when you have this banquet, verses 12 and 14, or 12 through 14, that in this culture, if you invite someone to your house uh, to have this formal banquet, we can think of, for instance, in our culture, a wedding. uh, We think of that being sort of a, a... formal meal, a significant meal. And as you invite people to this event, the expectations, they'll invite you back to another event. So if you have banquets at your house often, you're going to have people inviting you to their place. So what people would do in this culture, you want to climb the social ladder, you invite the people who are above you in, in terms of class, in society, and then they have an obligation in the context of class and society to invite you to their banquet. And so it's a way of climbing the social ladder. Well, Christ gives a twist on this, and he summarizes the nature of his mission, doesn't he? Because there's something very significant here. He says, Don't invite these important people that allow you to climb the social ladder and be more elite, rather, do something else. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Now in terms of Israel's thinking, these people would have done something wrong in their life. right? So they're, they're in this situation because either they sinned, their parents sinned, somebody in their family has sinned, and therefore they're receiving this as a consequence of the Lord's wrath being poured out on the family. So you don't want to associate with these individuals because they'll only pull you down, right? They're they're only people that are going to make you appear to be unclean or sinful or wicked. They're they're not going to be people that will elevate you. But yet when we think about Christ's mission, what what does Christ talk about? Well, when he goes and, and he mentions the nature of the kingdom, you know, John the Baptist thinks about the significance of Christ and whether he's really Christ and sends his messengers. Christ, uh, in Luke 7, cites Isaiah 27, talking about how there's healing to these particular people. Christ, beginning his public ministry, cites Isaiah 61. And so in the synagogue, when he cites Isaiah 61 and says, this is fulfilled in your hearing, Christ is saying, here I've come to take away These people deserving, which would be their mindset, deserving of this this sin, of this consequence of whatever has happened in their life. And I'm coming to take it away, to heal it, to bring redemption. And so Christ's consciousness of his mission is laying out right here. He's saying at my banquet table, the unworthy, the sinful, the disgusting, the unclean are invited to have life. And so he's saying to the Pharisee, you don't bring life by pulling yourself up in the social ladder. You actually bring life by living out the gospel. And Christ is looking around the table saying, it's quite clear that this is not about gospel living. This is about just worldly ambition is what's going on. And so Christ is rather upset by this. And so he gives the assurance of how we are to orient ourselves to think about the nature of the resurrection, right? Right? the resurrection of being raised with Christ, having life with Christ, having this identity in our Lord and Savior. And so Christ right here is is focusing our attention to the future, calling our attention to say that that this life right now is not the fullness of everything. We're we're looking to the absolute fullness uh, when we're brought into the consummate state. Now in terms of Christ, as I've already alluded to this, Christ being the traveling Christ as Luke presents him. So he's traveling to Jerusalem. And and you kind of get this sense of movement where you have in 14 verse 1, he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching. So he goes in. He's traveling. The communication or subtlety in Luke's gospel is he's not parking in this house, so to speak. He's not camping out here. This is not his place of ministry. He goes to the house, and the intention is to go out from the house. Uh, we think about Luke 12, verse 51. Christ summarizes his mission. He came, he travels through this world to cast fire, to deliver the blind, to bring healing. We think of Luke thirteen, fourteen, which is subtle. But Christ is not coming on the terms of the Pharisees, where they want him to come uh, to the synagogue to heal on six days and not the Sabbath. Christ is contrasting the nature of coming. So for the Pharisees, the Messiah comes to serve man. For Christ, he's saying Christ comes to establish the promises of the gospel. So it still serves man, but it's more understanding we're being brought into the context of the kingdom. That's the purpose of his coming, his entrance into history. So that's sort of just giving us a flavor of this movement. Christ again going out at the end of the gospel after his resurrection going to heaven traveling ascending to heaven the ultimate outcome of his mission so right here in terms of the significance of this banquet the the bigger picture is Christ saying think about the implications of the kingdom think about where the Messiah is moving think about whether or not we really wanna be on course with the Messiah as to where he's going, and especially with his immediate audience. Pharisees may not like this. Pharisees may not think this is a very good idea. And so Christ goes on to make this even more explicit, where he talks about these tragic excuses that that are coming on. When we think about these tragic excuses of being invited in the presence of God, this is where we, we understand how someone is starting to grasp the nature of Christ. Because as Christ says this, and he says, hey, you're going to be repaid at the resurrection. Think about this in terms of the bigger picture. You have someone now at the table saying, well, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Right. So somebody is grasping the reality that Christ is, is talking about. That the, the bigger banquet, the heavenly banquet, where... Everything's made right, and and you dine in the consummate or glorified kingdom. But then Christ is saying, okay, so you want to say, I want to celebrate the kingdom of God. So now Christ is presenting this parable, and and he's basically saying, do do you understand the implications of the banquet and, and the implications of the call? And so as Christ lays this out, as he's traveling, as he's moving through, inviting these people to understand the implications of this kingdom and as he wants them to understand that their call is not to basically invite people to advance their role in the kingdom Christ wants them to understand why they're celebrating they're celebrating the reality that Christ has come to establish the kingdom Christ has come to establish and redeem the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame he is coming clearly to secure the unworthy. We might say, well, how unworthy? And how is it that people would not find this significant? Well, we find that as Christ presents uh, this parable, that that there's these excuses that, that are rather shallow, to put it delicately. And you're so shallow that a man says, I bought a field. Now, we might say, well, this is a pretty big commitment, right? You're doing a business endeavor, you're buying a field, and you're thinking about how to make this field profitable if you're advancing or growing your your business or your farm. But notice the language. It's not I'm buying a field or I'm closing on a field. I bought a field. So so the point is this individual already owns the field. And as you know, with owning property, you're not going to give this back, right? There, there's no refunds, <clears throat> no refunds on it. You, you better have done your research. You better have figured out what you're going to do with it by the time you sign the papers. So the urgency of buying this field is over. No, Nobody else is potentially going to buy it. There's no other competition. This person has already acquired the field. Good, bad. This is his investment. This is what he has decided to do. But notice now, he, he says that as he has this, this past transaction, he has to go and see it. Well, I mean, think about that, that statement. Even if you buy this field, because maybe a friend tells you, hey, here's a good lead on a piece of property, even if you buy it somewhat spontaneously, well, you're, you're buying it, you know, you're assuming you can probably make something on it, but maybe not, you don't know. You're, you're already come to grips with the fact you might lose money on this endeavor. Not really urgent, right? I mean, if you just bought it spontaneously, you're kind of like, well, maybe we can make something, maybe we can't. So there's no urgency. And if you bought it because you do want to do something specific with it, You've already inspected it. I I hope so anyway, that you've already thought through. Yes, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. We're going to use this field for for this endeavor, and this is what we're going to do. So it's absurd to say, I've already bought the field. Now I need to inspect it. I mean, you sort of scratch your head and say, well, what are you thinking? How how is that any way to buy things? You should inspect it first, and then uh, think about purchasing it. If this isn't some speculative investment where you've already come to grips that you might lose your money or you might actually do okay on it and and you're okay with either decision. But the point is, there's nothing urgent about this field. That the reality is whatever has happened has transpired. The person can't get out of the endeavor and the person can basically wait till Monday if this banquet is Saturday, so to speak. We go into the next... um, Excuse sense here, and an individual says that he bought five yoke of oxen. Now, as you think about this, uh, that's a pretty sizable investment. I mean, anyone who has done any sort of uh, business would know that if you're going to buy a sizable piece of equipment, you're going to have this checked out, aren't you? I mean, you're not going to just spontaneously buy something like this. And, and not know anything about it. I mean, this is as absurd as saying, I don't know, I saw some machinery in a paper. I don't really know what you use it for. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I just bought it. And you look at the person and say, why? If you don't know anything about the machinery, why would you buy it? You don't even know if you can make a profit on it. You don't even know if you can use it for work. Why would you do this? But nevertheless, as this man buys the yoke, and again, it's past tense. Now I go to examine them. Well, again, you you look at it and you say, well, if you already bought them, wouldn't you have examined them prior to the purchase? I mean, that would only make sense that you would be aware the pros and cons of these oxen, whether they're really worth what you paid for them, uh, whether they're really going to be beneficial, how much time you probably speculate you're going to get out of them, right, A, a reasonable amount of time. So to to buy them, then inspect them, not very smart. It's sort of an absurd excuse. Anyone would know that they've already inspected them. They already know that they wanted this oxen. And so this individual is just making excuses. The last excuse may have the most credibility. This is where an individual says, I just got a wife. I cannot come. I've been married. This is basically an appeal to Deuteronomy 24, verse 50. Uh, in Deuteronomy 24 verse 50 there is a or 24 verse 5 excuse me uh, there's a provision that if someone is recently married they don't have to go to war and so it seems that this individual may be using that as an excuse but I don't know I mean I think back to being a newlywed and if you have an opportunity to go to this great banquet you know, you're, you're starting life together. It's not like you're, you're really at the high end of your income. You're not really in a place where you have a whole lot of assets together. This might be kind of a kick to just go uh, with your new bride and say, hey, we're going to go to this banquet of this great king and check out this palace and feel pretty prestigious for a night, right? You would think that any newlywed would be like, this is a good night out. You know, we don't have to buy dinner. We got a free banquet. We look prestigious. Let's do this. But that's not what happens which is another absurdity where you kind of read this and you think, I, I was at this stage once and I would have totally gone to the banquet. It would have been fun. But instead you find says, says, well, I just married a wife and, you know, I, I don't really think I can come. So you, you look at that and you say, well, that just makes no sense on, on any level. I mean, uh, any newlywed would love to go to this thing. So you look at this and you can understand why the host of the banquet is upset. These excuses are very Flimsy. There's no substance to them. And so when the servant comes back and the master's upset, you you can understand. He says, Well, you go out and you invite people and you bring people in. Go invite anyone. And, And so go into the streets, bring them all the crippled, the blind, the lame, right? So notice the echo here. This is what Christ says they should have invited as Pharisees to this banquet, but they didn't invite. Christ says, this is who we're going to bring in. The unclean, the unworthy, which you would construe as the sinful, those who deserve to be cast out into the street are not worthy of coming into the presence of the Lord. And so, this is telling us something about the tragedy of this banquet meal. That the people who should know better and know that the king was going to have a banquet, because again, in the ancient Near East, this is something. Um, probable where a a great master or someone who's very well off may say hey I'm going to have a banquet but I got to kind of wait for the the fattened calf to be at the right place and I got to wait for for this to be at the proper place so basically when he can kill the animals at the right time to make the feast that he desires to make that's when he has a banquet but you have kind of a a rough idea you know how long it's going to take for a cow to get to a place where you can eat the cow. And so you kind of know the season when you're going to get the invitation. And that's the point Christ is making, that there is sort of a a surprise element, but you also know that the, the, the invitation is coming. It's not a complete shock. And that's why the master is upset. This communing in the presence of the master is also the master saying, I'm opening my house. These are the people who will be worthy to dine with me. And so in terms of the sacrament of communion, when the Belgian confession is using that language of this banquet, this spiritual table, this is a point that Christ is making. In order for us to come to this banquet, to this spiritual table, which is what the Lord's Supper is giving us a taste of the ultimate heavenly banquet that Christ is holding out here, we have to understand we're unworthy. We have to understand that we are the blind, the lame, the crippled. Uh, As the Lord may have worked on us, and as the Lord hopefully has sanctified us and and brought us to a place where, you know, we're probably not where we were, where we began our Christian life, praise God for that. Nevertheless, that's a testimony of the Lord's sanctifying mercy and power, but still at the very core of who we are, we are the unworthy people who've been made worthy. The people who make these excuses are saying everything in this age, everything in this world is more prestigious, more significant than dining in the presence of the great king. This is why the master of the house has become angry. The people do not understand who is in their midst. And here it's Christ Jesus being the Lord God Almighty. And so we, we understand then the nature of this, this kingdom. We understand the nature of one coming to this feast One needs to understand they're unworthy. But what about this glorious entrance in terms of what this feast is ultimately communicating? Well, the Belgic Confession, I love this language as well. Again, I guess you can tell that I like this article quite a bit. But the language of the Belgic says, in short, by the use of this holy sacrament, we are moved to a fervent love of God and our neighbors. Think about that. Because the implication of this sacrament, when we understand who we really are, we are not the worthy recipients. We're not in a position that we understand we can make excuses and say, well, I'm too busy to come to the Lord's house, or I'm too busy to come into the Lord's presence, or I'm too busy to enter in uh, to the Lord's heavenly glory, which is really what this is a picture of, of coming to the Feast of the Lamb, that celebratory banquet of his ultimate victory. When we understand that here we are as poor, unworthy individuals, who do not belong in this kingdom. We're not worthy. Not because we're not of Jewish descent where the Pharisees would look at us and say, well, that's why. But it's because we're sinners. And this is a problem of what the Pharisees have done where they've elevated their Jewish descent and their uh, descent being descendants of Abraham to such a degree that they think they're worthy because of their genealogy. Or they think they're worthy because they're in covenant with Abraham, they have the prophets. But the glorious call here is to understand that when you understand your unworthiness, you're understanding how you are made worthy to come to this banquet. Because notice how this parable continues. We go on with this parable. As the servant reports to the master of the house, he's angry. You can understand why. This is God himself hosting the banquet. And as he's angry, he says, well, don't go out to the social centers, right? Because they've already brought in the poor, the lame, the crippled. And he says, okay, we're, we're not going to go there. I want you to go out to the highways and the hedges. Basically, this would be almost like the skid row of the community, right? It's, you're not going to the higher places of society, or we could say in our day and age, like the HOAs, the gated communities, uh, where you would expect the successful people to be found. Uh, This is where you would probably find more of your homeless, more of your drug addicts, more of those that you would not uh, consider really worthy. And as they go out, notice what, what they are told to do. To compel them. Now some people say, well, this language is where Uh, the servant is given permission to actually use violent force to force individuals to come. That's not really what the word's getting at. Uh, The word is getting at more of being sort of that overbearing friend uh, that just wants to hang out and is not going to let you off the hook and is just going to keep calling and keep calling and keep calling until you give in and say, fine, we'll go and we'll do something, all right? I, I surrender. And so it's not necessarily violence it's more just making sure that no is not an option in terms of this request so when you think about this he's saying to the servant go out to the place where you're going to find the most unworthy individuals and continually invite them and invite them and invite them until they come to the banquet and so when you think about this great master hosting this feast Christ is laying out what this picture is. The heavenly banquet is not for the worthy. The heavenly banquet is not for those who are worthy because they are good in and of themselves. Those who have table fellowship with the great king are those who recognize that they belong in the hedges, the outskirts of society, the unworthy, the dirty, the unclean are those who come to this banquet. Now, it's not that we stay in this this status. I mean, it's yes, the Lord is working on us. But the implication of this is that the Lord is coming to an unworthy people. So I think so often when we talk about the Lord's Supper, we, we miss this whole banquet theology of understanding that the Lord's Supper is not instituted for the worthy. The Lord's Supper is instituted for the unworthy is communicating that that we're brought into the heavenly presence of God as poor sinners individuals needing Christ's redemptive work individuals who come to this table because of the redemptive mercy of God those who have called and who have been who have responded because the grace of God has entered into our lives and so when Christ is laying this out It's important to understand that he comes to the Pharisee's house, right? So he's traveling. We continue on in terms of Luke's gospel. Where does it end? We think in Luke 24 where he's traveling with the men who are going to to Emmaus, right? So he's on the road. He breaks bread in their presence. Again, that picture of the banquet, fellowship, making a reference back to the Lord's Supper prior to going to the cross as Luke is building this theology. We think about the disciples where they're locked in a room. What does Christ do in the midst of them? Have you anything to eat? Again, you have that theology of eating, that theology of communion. And so when when you put this in the context of Luke 14 being the setting of the great banquet, table fellowship is a significance of saying that one is brought into the presence of God and who they are around in terms of this presence is communicating their status at their banquet. And notice that it is Christ who does not invite the worthy, but the unworthy. You think lastly of the vision in Acts with Peter having that vision of the animals coming down that were unclean and wondering if he could go to Cornelius' house and eat, then you have those picture or that glorious verse, "Kill and eat." Again, you know it's that invitation that you can eat this unclean food, and it's not just saying we can eat pork, um, but it's saying that we that he can actually have communal table fellowship with a Gentile, so Peter can go to his house and commune with him. So in terms of of the Lord's Supper, then, as we wrap this up in conclusion, we say, why does this feast really matter? Why, Why is this banquet scene so important? Well, it matters because we need to understand how we're pressing forward. We're pressing forward as a people who are being nourished through the sacrament, yes, through the preaching of the gospel, as we have heard, and the power of the Spirit, But we're pressing forward to that heavenly banquet. The feast scenes in Luke's gospel are communicating that movement, that movement to the ultimate great banquet. As we hear the call of the gospel in this context, it's that reminder that we have life in our Lord. It's that feasting and knowing that as we go about this life, we are those who are entering into the presence of the living God. That's the ultimate outcome of where our lives are headed. And so the the call of understanding this banquet is also reminding us that, yes, we we don't know when Christ is coming again, just like we don't know when the fattened calf is going to be ready uh, to be consumed at the banquet, but we have kind of an understanding that it's coming. That's the same urgency that Christ is communicating here, that he is coming again. We will enter into his presence. We will dine at the king's table forever. It's a reminder then that we are those who are redeemed in the Lord and and that redemption is important. We don't come to this meal because we are worthy. We come to this meal because we are made worthy. And by the grace of God and the power of his spirit, we begin to discern what it means to live unto the Lord and to desire to live it out even as we do it imperfectly in this age but that desire to live it out to the living God. And so it's that assurance then that we are those who have our place in the heavenly banquet table as we are grounded in our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged to this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is e.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshiping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.